Well, happy Easter weekend to you. This is Resurrection Sunday, and one of those pivotal moments on the church calendar where we celebrate that love wins over hate, life wins over death, and Jesus is King. And so, so glad that you chose to join us today. Uh, this is a good day. And uh, if you happen to be new to church or find yourself even at the edges of faith, uh, glad that you chose to join us. Uh, this is one of those moments um, where we get a chance to connect the dots. And, um, uh, you know, Christmas, even though it was a number of months ago, was kind of like part one of a two-part movement. Uh, where we understand that this young Jewish woman was moved upon by the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's really the Bible's way of saying that uh, there was a child conceived within her uh, outside the normal affairs uh, of, of life or the natural ways of things being conducted in this world. And it was a supernatural occurrence. And uh, the child born to the young Jewish woman, Mary, was the unique, one-of-a-kind son of God. That's the Bible's way of saying fully God, fully man. And that's an important first part of this um, uh, weekend celebration because the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday are predicated upon the fact that Jesus was so much more than a prophet, even though he spoke on behalf of God. He was so much more than just a good man, even though he was thoroughly good. He was the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God. In fact, John, who wrote a gospel account, said in verse 14 of the first chapter of his gospel uh, that God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's in the message translation. And um, so God has taken on flesh in Jesus and he has shown us what it looks like to live life well and he's invited us to be his followers and his friends. And then he lays down his life for us on Good Friday, provides forgiveness for our sins, and then on Easter Sunday demonstrates that death no longer is to be feared and that uh, Jesus is truly king over life and death. And so our passage to ponder that we've been working through over the last number of weeks as we've been talking about the kings and queens of Israel's history, uh, the series concludes today as we talk about Jesus being the king, the ultimate king, the king of the universe. Um, our passage to ponder from John 18 goes like this. Jesus said these words, my kingdom is not of this world. Remember, um, God took on flesh and dwelled among us. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now he says, my kingdom is from another place. And Jesus himself, born from above, um, he is the unique incarnate Son of God. So on this Resurrection Sunday, we're going to put an exclamation mark behind uh, this truth that Jesus is the King of life. Uh, he exists in a category all on his own. Um, every other king and queen and president and prime minister and ruler in this world um, always ends up, like all of us do, um, heading towards the finish line of life in this world, and death gets the final word on us, unless, of course, again, we empower, we invite the Spirit of Jesus to empower us as we put our saving faith in Him, and then death is very much a threshold that we step over to be with God on the other side. Jesus Himself Death did not get the final word for him. So on Resurrection Sunday, we're going to talk about the importance of that um, experience and that historical event and the impact it has on our lives. But before we go there, just want to talk, first of all, about us. We want to be king over our own castle. 
Um, maybe you recall, I'm dating myself a little bit, but when I was a kid on the playground, just a young school-age kid, we would taunt one another playfully, of course, and we would say, I'm the king of the castle, and you're the dirty rascal. And, and we would just kind of go after one another, teasing and, and trying to one-up one another. And uh, But the truth is this, that we do truly want to be king of our own castle. This is part of what it means to be human. In fact, God gave each and every one of us the capacity to uh, function within a circle of our own personal freedom and responsibility. And so uh, when we are not at our best, we want to impose our circle or our kingdom onto others. And we see what's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now, where Mr. Putin wants to impose his circle upon a whole other nation. And all the horrific images and stories that are coming out of Ukraine are just absolutely devastating and horrific. And we pray for the Ukrainian people. We pray for peace on both sides of that conflict. But when humans are not at their best, they want to um, enlarge their circle and they end up imposing their freedom onto others. And so um, we want to, this is human, it's instinctive and it's uh, fundamentally good and natural. We want to decide for ourselves. In fact, that's the way God has made us. In fact, without um, freedom, there's no love. And so because God so loved the world, he gave us freedom. And so we get to choose. And uh, the very first man, the very first woman in, in Genesis chapter 3, if you happen to be new to the Bible, let me read these nine verses to you because everything else from the story of Scripture um, is kind of predicated upon this beautiful act of God's good creation and then what we call the fall of humanity. And so let me read this to you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, and you need to underline this part, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? It's a real tragic story of how uh, the first um, uh, man and woman actually chose to live independent of God wanted to go their own way, do what was right in their own eyes, and, and they, they disobeyed what God had, had asked them to, to avoid doing. And uh, the, the consequences were that there was shame, alienation, and ultimately death that came into their experience. And so every time we experience uh, the loss of a loved one, every time we, um, again, anticipate the loss of a, of a pet, um, and, and we experience the sting of death, we're reminded that things in this world are not the way they're supposed to be. Um, it was supposed to be very different than this. And so um, right at the very beginning of the story of the Bible, uh, we, we see that when we live independent of God, when we choose to push back against the ways of God, we end up experiencing the scent of death in our lives. And so it's true about us that we want to decide for ourselves and we end up in complicated dead ends. Um, that's just the way life goes for us when we do life our own way and on our own terms. 
Uh, life happens to all of us. We make the best decisions we can in the moment, but unfortunately there are so many variables that are at play in life that sometimes we end up making very poor decisions. And we do that because there's emotional dynamics, there's relational dynamics, there's mental, there's physical or biological dynamics at play. And we end up choosing for ourselves what is not always best for ourselves. And so in the moment, we think we're choosing the right thing, but hindsight tells us I should have gone or we should have gone another way. We have a limited perspective as humans. Um, it's almost as though we have an obstructed view at the concert of life. Or it could be argued that um, you've probably seen these um, night vision uh, binoculars where sometimes you see the military using them where it's pitch black, but they put on these binoculars and they can see like it's daylight. Um, we don't have the capacity to see in the dark. Um, now, God does. In fact, Psalm 139 says this, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. So you and I are finding our way in the world and, and we want to choose for ourselves. We wanna be king or queen of our own castle. And, and that's instinctively what it means to be human, but oftentimes it becomes infected and we go all the wrong ways. Um, God sees clearly. And when we read in scripture, the ways of God, those ways of God are intended to be protective, to be provisional for us, to give us everything we need so we can live a good and beautiful life. But yet we're so committed to our independence, we tend to push back instinctively and say, no, I'm going to do it my way. And I want to be king or queen of my own castle. And, um, and so we know how that ends up. Proverbs 14 says, there's a way that appears right, but in the end, it leads to death. Here we are again, back to this uh, picture of death. It shows up in Genesis 3. It shows up in all sorts of different expressions in scripture. And here the writer of Proverbs says, we think we're going the right way until we get to the end and we realize it's not where we thought it was leading us. It's a dead end street. Um, this is what it means to be human as well. We accumulate our deeds. Um, there, there is a cumulative um, uh, nature to life. And that principle shows up in the gym. It shows up in our diet. It shows up in our financial portfolios. It shows up in our relationships. We can carry an emotional um, uh, positive or negative balance with people based on what we deposit into the relationship. Um, life by nature is cumulative. And so um, there's a principle, we call it, we reap what we sow, or it's the law of the harvest. And Paul, who's a New Testament leader uh, in the Bible, writes in a book called Galatians. He wrote to a church in Galatia, a region in Asia. And he writes these words. He says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay, here's that word again, and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So Paul says, the law of the harvest is real. You can't mock God. What we plant in the soil of our lives will grow up to either bless or curse us. And so uh, when we choose to live independent of God, or as the Bible says, um, toward our sin nature, that lower nature that we have that instinctively goes right when we're supposed to go left, it ends up um, creating a scent of death over our lives. And so our first thought for consideration this morning is that we want to be king over our own castle.
Um, secondly, Jesus is king over a kingdom. Let's just rewind the tape and go back to Good Friday for just a moment. Jesus is dying between two criminals who are dying for crimes they did commit. Jesus is dying for crimes he did not commit. And uh, one of them is hurling insults at Jesus. The other one says, don't you fear God? And then he speaks to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All he, all he professed was that Jesus was a king with a kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It is a beautiful, beautiful glimpse into the heart of God. And so as we think about Jesus, who is a king over a kingdom, there is both a qualitative and a quantitative element to the kingdom of God. And it's so much different than the kingdom we try to build for ourselves or the kingdoms of this world. And again, without um, taking us to a preoccupation around what's happening with Mr. Putin and all that he's inflicting upon the people of the Ukraine, we just think about a very different kind of king when we look at King Jesus. So the qualitative difference, um, four quick brief ideas for you about this. In the kingdom of God, Jesus is king over his kingdom. It is known for sacrificial love. He's in the garden of Eden, or sorry, he's in the garden of Gethsemane, and he is wrestling with God through prayer, his father, and he is asking that this cup of suffering be taken from him. But then he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. He was willing to enter into and to step into the ultimate act of sacrificial love by dying for others. We see generous mercy show up when he says to the one who had lived a life that was probably rather reckless for him to end up on a cross, who was guilty of some crime, and he acknowledges that he's guilty, and yet Jesus offers him generous mercy in that moment. He didn't have time to pay Jesus back or to pay God back in any way. He just says, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is a generous act of mercy. This is King Jesus. He surrenders himself in trust to his father. In one moment, in some mystery that is hard for us to understand, God was in, the, in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And yet in some mysterious moment, Jesus is dying on the cross, reconciling the world to the Father. And yet there is this chasm or separation or the absence of the presence of God that Jesus experiences. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he turns around in the next breath, even though he's experiencing somehow in some mysterious way, the absence of the intimacy with his father, he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Even though I'm troubled by all that's happening right now, I still trust you. Trouble came first and trust followed. And then finally, we see the extravagant forgiveness of Jesus on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so he acknowledges again, not Father, get them back and deal with them aggressively for what they've done to me. He doesn't call for retribution. He calls for forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This is King Jesus over his kingdom. It is qualitatively different than the kingdoms of this world and the leaders of this world who want to impose their own circle and dominate others. This is not the way of the Lord Jesus, and it's not the way of those who profess to follow him either. So it's qualitatively different, and it's quantitatively different. Let me just read this story. Jesus tells a story. He says this, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He's amazingly prosperous. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I have a great idea. I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, 
You have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything that you've worked for? Death is the biggest enemy of the human family. It's what we fear the most. None of us have been there yet. And so there is this sense in which it is a ominous um, reality that awaits us all. And um, in the kingdom of God, death is viewed very differently. When we are outside the kingdom of God and not factoring in the resurrected Jesus, death is overwhelming. But when we understand that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, which means our sins have been canceled, forgiveness has been provided for us, and death now comes under the leadership of the Lord Jesus. Remember, when we live disobediently and we live independently of God, back to Genesis 3, death will be our experience. Jesus steps in and reverses the curse, so to speak, and takes it upon himself and then defeats death himself. Um, in this story about building bigger barns and experiencing tremendous prosperity and saying, eat, drink, and, and be merry, um, God speaks to the man and says, you're acting foolishly. You don't realize there is a set limit to your time in this world. Um, life in this world has a limiting factor for all of us. But thanks be to God, because of Jesus, we step over death, which is a threshold into the life to come. Um, all right, finally, number three is this. The resurrection of Jesus speaks to all of our one-day crucial longings. All of our one-day crucial longings. Uh, humans are built to lean into the future with hope. One day, I want to learn how to, and you fill in the blank. One day, I hope to buy a, and you fill in the blank. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to one day travel to whatever continent or country to visit? Or one day I would like to try some experience. We all have these one day aspirations. That's what it means for us to be human. And all of us who are watching today on this Resurrection Sunday have casual longings, critical longings, and crucial longings. And let me explain what these are. This is from Dr. Larry Crabb. Casual longings are all of us want creature comforts in this life. We want to have enough money left at the end of the month. We want to have heat when it's cold. We want to have air conditioning when it's hot. We want to have a roof over our head that doesn't leak. We want to have healthy bodies to move about in this world. These are our casual longings. We want life to work for us in a certain domain so that we have a certain measure of creature comfort. Critical longings are relational satisfaction. We want to have friendships that matter. We want to be in relationships that fulfill us. And, and when we feel connected and that we feel like we belong, these are our critical longings. We were made for relationship. And when our relationships are thriving, we tend to thrive too. And then there's these crucial longings that Dr. Larry Crabb calls only the joys and the peace that God himself can provide for us. And so... Um, we try to navigate life the best we can by organizing ourselves and insulating ourselves from pain and all of that stuff so that we can have casual fulfillment. We can have our physical comforts met, our creature comforts. And then we try to build relationships the best we can so that we can have a, a, a meaningful sense of satisfaction in our relational circles. Um, but the crucial longings, um, we try to fill them with the casual and the critical. And the, the challenge is that we were made for something that this world cannot provide without the input 
of God himself. We were made for a relationship with God, the first man, the first woman. God comes looking for them to go for a walk in the early hours of the morning, like he would every day, but this time they were hiding. This time they were feeling shame and guilt. This time they were blaming one another. This time there was alienation. There was something that had gone wrong. And God himself in verse nine of Genesis three says, where are you? He knew where they were geographically. It was a question about what's gone on, what's gone wrong, what's happened to us. He was looking for his friends and they were not there to present themselves the way they had the previous day. God is looking for us. And in fact, that's the mission of the Lord Jesus, to come to seek and to save that which was lost, which is all of us. And so when we say yes to Jesus and we allow him to take upon himself the penalty of our sin, and we acknowledge that we need saving, and when we believe in our hearts that Jesus is the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God, and we decide to follow him, um, we actually step into that which we were made for. And so uh, without a relationship with God, all the casual and critical longings add up to be, boy, you know what? They're all right, but there's still something missing. Every time you go on one of those five-star resort vacations, you always have to come home or it rains on Thursday afternoon or the food was a little bit cold or for whatever reason, it was a bit breezy or there was seaweed on the beach. Nothing ever satisfies forever. You get the new car and the new car smell wears off. You get the home and you're so excited about it and then the mortgage payment comes or you realize there's repair work that has to be done or responsibilities around the house. There is nothing in this world that can purely and truly satisfy us entirely all the time because we were made for more. In fact, C.S. Lewis said something like this, if I find in myself a desire for nothing in this world that can satisfy, perhaps I was made for another place. And I think he's so right. We were made for a relationship with God. So God speaks to his people in Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13, he says this, my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, reminds me of Genesis three, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. They're trying to fill that part of their life with things that are not able to fill. And so one day our crucial longings are future, are future oriented, but we have one big problem. Sorry, our one day crucial longings are future oriented, but we have one big problem. Death stands in the way of our ultimate future, casual and critical longings and we're prevented from getting that which we really want the most. Um, in John chapter 11, Jesus is talking to one of his friends, Lazarus's sister, and uh, he says this, he told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Try to get your head around that for a sec. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never ever die. Do you believe this, Martha, he says to her. Amazing, amazing promise. He says, Jesus himself says, if you believe in me, you will never die. So Jesus is the gateway to life and to life everlasting. There's a qualitative and a quantitative aspect of life in the kingdom of God. And then here, let me finish with this passage and then I'll read one last story for us and then we'll be on our way. Here it is. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about the resurrection. This is an early New Testament church leader. He writes this to the early believers. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. In other words, I didn't invent this story. It was given to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. There's Good Friday. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. That's Resurrection Sunday, just as the scripture said. He, has be he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. 
After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. There are people who can substantiate the resurrected Jesus, uh, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I, was also, I also saw him. For I am the least of the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Our earthly bodies, he says, he continues on here in verse 42. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. This is the law of sowing and reaping again. We see a little picture of this. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. And when Jesus came out of the grave on that first Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday morning, uh, there was a first fruit, so to speak, or a pattern that one, one day we would follow. That though we would breathe our last, this side of heaven and our bodies be committed to the ground, there will come a day when we will be resurrected to new life with God because of what Jesus did for us. And so we all have a problem. It's inevitable that we will all have to face our own death. And Christians don't deny it. We just realize that Jesus has made a way for us through it. Secondly, life in this world matters. We get to choose how we live life. Jesus is king over life and over death. And a good and beautiful life is found in listening to him, learning from him, and loving him. And then finally, the end is not the end. It offers up a new beginning. Death is a threshold that we step over into the world to come. Life in the uninterrupted presence of God. Now, I have shared this little parable a bunch of times when I have had the privilege of serving at uh, people's memorial services or funerals or celebrations of life. And I've shared it, I think, with our church family, but it just bears, it's one of my favorite stories ever. So let me just share it, and then with this, we'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, twins are talking to each other in the womb. One of my favorite writers, Henry Nowen, he says this. Twins are talking to each other in the womb, and the sister said to the brother, I believe there is life after birth. Her brother protested vehemently, no, no, this is all there is. This is a dark and cozy place and we have nothing else to do but to cling to the cord that feeds us. The little girl insisted, there must be something more than this dark place. There must be something else, a place with light where there is freedom to move. Still, the brother could not convince her twin brother. After some silence, the sister said hesitantly, I have something else to say and I'm afraid you won't believe that either. But I think, I think there's a mother. Her brother became furious. A mother, he shouted. What are you talking about? I've never seen a mother and neither have you. Who put that crazy idea in your head? As I told you, this place is all we have. Why do you always want more? This is not such a bad place after all. We have all we need, so let's just be content. The sister was quite overwhelmed by her brother's response and for a while didn't dare say anything more, but she couldn't let go of her thoughts. And since she only had her twin brother to speak to, she finally said, don't you feel these squeezes every once in a while? They're quite unpleasant and sometimes even painful. Yes, he answered. What's so special about those? Well, the sister said, I think that these squeezes are there to get us ready for another place, much more beautiful than this, where we will see our mother face to face. Don't you think that's exciting? I think that's a beautiful story. And for the one today who struggles to believe that there's more, I hope that story helps you have just a little more faith than you had before we started today. So I wanna pray for you and, uh, and then I'll let you carry on with your Easter Sunday and invite the host pastors to come back. Father, thank you again today for Jesus, for the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. 
Thank you, Lord, that death does not get the final word over us. Some of us have recently even buried those we love, and we know, Lord, that it's their body that we've committed to the ground, but their spirit has returned to God. And we know, Lord, that there will be a day when we too will breathe our last and that we will be, um, again, at home with you on the other side. Thank you for what you've done for us. I pray, Lord, for each of us that we would live life with great confidence and hope, knowing that there is so much more than life in this world. And we thank you for Jesus, who's made that life, both sides of heaven, possible. And uh, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.